0: Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. Some empowering information on health and nutrition, beginning with a study from the University of California at Los Angeles. I'm sure you have all had it sometime or other uh, curry in your different uh, dishes, Indian cuisine. Well, in that curry, you're going to have what is called turmeric, T-U-R-M-E-R-I-C. In turmeric, you have curcumin really powerful, a functional herb. It heals the body. Thousands of studies on it. And this study is about the world's most extensively researched spice and it proves itself capable of remarkable therapeutic properties, with the latest study showing it may compensate for one of the plant-based diet's most heavily debated shortcomings, DHA omega-3 fatty acid deficiency. Now, a fascinating new study on the golden-hued polyphenol found in turmeric root, known as curcumin, C-U-R-C-U-M-I-N, reveals a new mechanism by which this extensively studied phytocompound may alleviate cognitive disorders, improve memory, executive function, especially in vegetarian and vegans. In the National Institute of Health's funded study researchers, found that curcumin enhances the biosynthesis of the essential fatty acid, uh, DHA, in the brain. And DHA deficiency is very common. can have a wide range of adverse consequences to the optimal functioning of your brain. If this animal studies results are applicable to human physiology and metabolism, it is a significant contribution to validating the role of vegetarianism or a more plant-based diet in human nutrition. So, have your curcumin every day. Or have turmeric. You just get more cur- curcumin if you have a capsule of curcumin. And it helps to increase DHA synthesis in your liver. And that relates in better cognitive skills. Reduced anxiety behavior. So, all good. By the way, there's hundreds of other things that are shown in the scientific literature, helping prevent cancer, helping if you have cancer, diabetes. From the Medical College of Georgia comes a study about a vitamin D receptor activator and inhibits tumor formation of uterine fibroids. Let me spell it. P-A-R-I-C-A-L-C-I-T-O-L and uh, The studies from the Medical College of Georgia report that this vitamin D receptor can be very important if you want to prevent uterine fibroids. And so, just one more reason to have your vitamin D3 every day. Make sure you get it. I take it twice a day. I suggest you might want to do the same. Maybe 2,000 units in the morning and 2,000 units in the afternoon. Just... There's a lot that we're finding out about these nutrients beyond what we already know. From the American Academy of Pediatrics, they're advising now avoiding GMO, which is genetically modified organism foods, due to glyphosate residues. This is published in the American Academy of Pediatrics. Quote, the American Academy of Pediatrics report authors, three eminent pediatricians note that glyphosate, is a probable carcinogen and may be an endocrine, meaning hormone disruptor in humans. They also point out the link between high urinary levels of glyphosate in pregnant women with an increased risk of premature births. They add that other herbicides used on genetically modified crops like dicamba and 2,4-D are possible carcinogens, and according to the National Agency for Research on Cancer. So how about, why not say this? Because if you were to go back about 12 years and you watch the documentary called Seeds of Death, it was the first major documentary to take every aspect of GMO and challenge them, and especially Roundup and glyphosate. When I first made the documentary, there were no lawsuits that had been won against Monsanto that showed that glyphosate was a carcinogen. Now, there are tens of thousands of lawsuits have been settled by Bayer that bought Monsanto. And uh, no one should ever be using glyphosate. All right? And, or Roundup, in my opinion. So, anyhow, why not reverse it? Why not say something like this? The best foods for every infant... Toddler and baby would be organic, first breastfeeding. That's your number one way of enhancing a child's baby's immune system, in the right way, and then select organic produce that has no sprays on them. All right, so that they won't do, but organic's a lot better than non-organic. From the University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, it reveals the guts crucial role. In lung disease, researchers led by the University of Technology and the Hunter Medical Research Institute suggest that your gut, the bacteria in your gut, play a pivotal role in the development of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, paving the way for new therapeutic treatments. This was published in the peer-reviewed journal Gut, and key discoveries from the study include the identification of distinct bacteria associated with COPD and the potential effectiveness of fecal microbiota transfer, or what is called FMT, as a COPD treatment. The study also demonstrated improved outcomes for COPD patients through nutritional interventions tailored to the microorganisms found in your gut. So that's good news. But I would would approach it differently because there's a person in this audience who had in-stage COPD, he also had in-stage leukemia, and he was going into hospice care. Instead, he chose to come unannounced uh, to a health retreat I was doing. Now, at these health retreats, I don't diagnose or treat any illnesses. These are purely to help people relax, de-stress, detoxify, and they help you get a perspective on what's good about uh, health, healthy choices, the consequences of bad choices and good choices. Anyhow, he came, and we didn't have the heart to send him home. After all, someone says, you know, I have, I have no place to go. Um, I'm prepared for the end of my life where my two brothers, my father, all died in the same hospice care from COPD and leukemia, and he has both. He said, but I thought I'd throw a Hail Mary pass and see if I could improve something. Well, not only did he improve something, over the next two weeks, when he went home, his pulmonologists were just staggered. They could find no blockage, inflammation. So he went to two different additional pulmonologist groups, and they could find nothing either. As a result, he has no diagnosis of COPD today. Now, I won't go into the whole way that I feel that this impacts them, but a very important part of a healthy diet, a plant-based diet, is making sure that you're eating very little or no sugars and alcohol, because that promotes toxic, very bad bacteria. So if you had to really simplify it, you could say, good bacteria, good gut microbiome, or good bacteria from good food which means good immune system. So good bacteria in your gut from good food produces good immune response. Bad bacteria from sugars and yeasty foods and processed foods and potato chips and hot dogs and hamburgers and alcohol, well, bad bacteria and unhealthy immune response. It's that simple. And of course, by taking in probiotics in fermented foods and prebiotics, like having some Apple cider, that's a prebiotic. Sauerkraut, kimchi, tofu, tempeh, miso, those are probiotics, and that helps you. From Sao Paulo State University Medical School in Brazil, Bach, that's B-A-C-H, flowers, proves superior to placebo for obese adults' anxiety. Now, there's a lot of science that is now being looked upon with aromatherapies and essential oil therapies. And then there's the Bach flower remedies. And proponents of the Bach flower remedies have long touted their healing properties. But critics argue these subtle plant-based treatments lack the evidence to back their claims. Well, new clinical trial data gives fresh perspective. As rates of anxiety and obesity have climbed in tandem worldwide, Scientists have warned that excessive weight can significantly heighten risk of mood disorders. So in a randomized, placebo-controlled trial enrolling 81 overweight or obese Brazilian adults with moderate to severe anxiety, the participants either were given a uh, blend of six buck flower essences like white chestnut and cherry plum and chicory and crabapple and pine, or a flower-free, Placebo, alcohol solution, indistinguishable in taste and color. One's a placebo; nothing's there, and the other is the Bach flower remedies. All were instructed to self-administer four drops of their assigned tincture onto the tongue four times daily for four weeks. Changes in anxiety severity uh, served as the primary outcome, and uh, this was part of the State Trait Anxiety Inventory uh, test. Well, on this multivariant analysis, they revealed that flowers, essence, block flower, conferred significant added benefit over placebo for every treatment target. Anxiety, the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index uh, Assess Sleep Test, the binge eating scale evaluated binge eating test, and electrocardiogram recorded heart rate at rest were all superior if they used the black powder remedies. So, science is showing what a lot of people had believed that it made a difference. And finally, from the University of Pittsburgh, a study discovers a molecular mechanism that could explain why eating too much protein is bad for your arteries. The University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine researchers discovered a molecular mechanism by which excessive dietary protein could increase atherosclerosis risk. The findings are published in the highly respected Nature Metabolism. The study, which combines small human trials with experiments in mice and cells in a Petri dish, showed that consuming over 22% of dietary calories from protein can lead to increased activation of immune cells that play a role in atherosclerotic plaque formation. Not good, because that's going to drive the disease risk. Furthermore, the scientists showed that one amino acid, Leucine, L-E-U-C-I-N-E, seems to have a disproportionate role in driving the pathological pathways linked to atherosclerosis. So, we just eat far too much protein in the United States. And even vegans eat too much, because they've been led to believe, or oh, you can't get your protein from vegetables. Yes, you can. In fact, as the senior research fellow scientist and the head of the anti-aging department at the Institute of Biology. It was my study that showed that all vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, legumes, grains, cont- tubers contain all eight essential amino acids. And also I wrote the book, Protein for Vegetarians, which showed that even vegetarians are frequently getting twice the amount of protein they need. Now why is that a big deal? Because your body cannot store protein. So when you have enough the body then has to break it down, get rid of it. And it does this through a process called deamination. In the process of breaking down your amino acids to get them out of the body, the protein, you create extra urea and ammonium. Both are toxic to the kidney and liver. Both also can cause some brain fog. And if you've been on a high protein diet as millions of Americans have, do you ever notice how you feel sluggish? Too much protein. Now, this is just showing that you're also creating heart disease. So, that's a big deal. Nearly a quarter of the population receives over 22% of all their daily calories from protein alone. Not good. So, you know, you need 9 tenths of a gram per kilogram of protein uh, per body weight a day. That's somewhere between 40 to 60 grams, depending upon your size, uh, your activities, your age, but some people are having 200 to 300 grams of protein in a single meal in one day. By the end of a day, you've had a week's worth of protein in one day. That's prematurely aging your body, causing disease in the kidney and the liver, and brain fog. That's the latest on health and healing. And keep in mind, I do the Gary newsletter with John LaBelle I think he is America's longest uh, teaching architect. He's professor, was chairman of the department at Pratt Institute, one of the most respected educational institutions, especially for architecture. It's number one in America, In their 53 years. That's a long time to be teaching. And as a hobby, he takes the best information from my radio show and articles and documentaries and recipes and he sends it out to people once a week for free or every day for a very small fee. You can go to GaryNall.com and you'll see a flashing light. Get that. Shows you how to sign up either for free or for a small fee. Small fee, you get it every day and you get a lot of other bonuses and discounts. And my upcoming uh, webinars, should come to free. That saves you 30 bucks right there. That's the latest that we have to share with you right now. And by the way, go to Gary Knoll on um, YouTube for my Classrooms on the Air. I have a new one coming today as well. Thank you all for watching, listening, and most importantly, share this with other people. Have a nice day. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to welcome you to a special program today, special one that we have one theme for the entire hour, and that is we do not have a democracy that we claim we do. We do everything in the name of democracy. Do we even understand what a democracy is? Where are majority rules. 50.1% of a group suddenly controls the 49.9%. No, we have a constitutional republic and have from the beginning. Why don't we recognize that? Why don't we recognize the rights of all people, including the minority people? But we don't. How's that manifest? It manifests in different ways that we will explore today. For example, for over 22 years, not in the House nor in the Senate, did we have a situation where we could have hearings into the legitimacy of Wikipedia as an actual encyclopedia that was objective and fair. It is neither, but no hearings. How about a hearing on whether or not a group of individuals, at the CDC, knowingly hid information that showed a very big increase in autism spectrum disorder in African American young children, males 36 months and younger, up to 325% increase, meaning hundreds of thousands of young males didn't have to end up with autism or neurological disorders, but they hid the information. Surely a congressional hearing was in order. And that would have found the culprits, those who were committing this fraud, a crime, and served them justice. Never happened. It's not going to happen. Why? Because the majority is controlled by corporate interest, foundations, think tanks, and lobbyists who put money in the pockets of those people supposedly representing our government. And so now, and only in the last year have we been able to have hearings to hold those in power accountable. Now, in a constitutional republic, the Constitution is on the side of the people. It was meant to protect the people from the government excesses. What do we have now? Nothing but control of every part of our lives. And I'll get into this in great detail and examples. The curriculum in schools... The, uh, the taxes we pay, how the money is spent, who's accountable for anything, what happens when a public health policy like COVID goes terribly wrong and people are injured and die. If you have the ability to challenge these excesses, then there is some fairness. We have no ability to do that. Everything is stacked against the average person. So we're going to go into this. And we're beginning with a clip, a longer clip. And uh, this is an interesting clip. And I'll get more into the person doing the clip, and I commend him for this. Uh, It's a good piece, it's well done, and it's accurate. And then, if you'd like to call in and share your points of view at any time after the clip, please do so. But we're also going to show you, in clip after clip after clip, now that there are people who've been given the opportunity because they control the committees that are allowed to be formed and experts allowed to go on the record under oath to challenge those in power. And you'll see how absolutely feeble, how utterly disingenuous and corrupt those in power are when they're not talking on a press conference or in front of one of their favorite media pundits, But rather, they're held accountable. Tell the truth, or it's perjury. And you'll hear how they respond. And this is a story that's not known by 99.9% of the American public. But we watch C SPAN. We watch these hearings. And when they're important and they impact our lives, we're going to bring them to your attention. That's today's show. Now to the clip. Oh, and by the way, go to prn.live. That's prn.live. Scroll down to archives. And I pre recorded just before this today's health and nutrition. So you can still get all that quality information uh, by going there. But now the whole program is on the myth of being a democracy.
1: We are officially off to the presidential horse races. And what a race it is! Both major parties have their de facto nominees already more or less selected. Don't! mess with them in an American
0: unless you want to get the benefit.
1: While young vultures swirl around their aging bodies, ready to swoop in if either one of them is taken out by an act of God. Meanwhile, sloganeering around our democracy, has been in full force since the 2016 election, when the Washington Post bravely adopted the phrase, democracy dies in darkness, as its first official motto in 140 years. And the talking heads are ramping up their rhetoric.
0: Our democracy. Democracy. Our democracy. Democracy. Democracy is on the ballot this year.
1: It's enough to make you break down and weep for our country. I'm gonna try to get through this, thank
2: you for what you did three years ago today. Um.
1: Was that guy really brought to tears over the future of our democracy? Maybe he got a look at the current state of civics education in America because that is enough to make a grown man weep. According to the National Assessment of Educational Progress, only 22% of eighth graders were proficient in civics and only 13% in US history.
3: Me fail English? That's impossible.
1: So our kids, And more specifically, our schools are getting a deep red F on the nation's report card when it comes to learning how our political system works and what our role should be in it. Let's face the facts. If we want our kids to understand our political system and how it actually works in reality, we're going to need to roll up our sleeves as parents and do it ourselves. Because this whole system is predicated on an educated citizenry. So we don't end up here. Okay, I admit we might already be there. The president of America!
2: Hey,
1: no, we're there. But if we want to escape idiocracy, we need to go beyond the schoolhouse rock explanations we got when we were kids.
4: He signed your bill, now you're a law.
1: Oh yeah! Frankly, we'd be lucky to get back to that Mr. Bill, because these days, our kids' civic knowledge looks a little too much like the other Mr. Bill. But fear not, dear friends, starting with this video and throughout the year, I'm going to be breaking down some of the basics of how our political system was designed, how it seems to work in reality, and what we as citizens can do about it. So in the words of civics advocate and Spielberg movie favorite Richard Dreyfuss, we as parents must teach our kids how to run our country before they are called upon to run it, or someone else will. What the hell is going on around here? Who's, who are you people? So. Grab your kids and let's run through this together, starting with a proper understanding of the D word. Okay, say it with me now, people. Democracy, 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 democracy.
2: Democracy, 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 democracy,
1: democracy, democracy, democracy. Yes! Everyone loves democracy. Democracy is sacrosanct. Democracy is the end of history, the best system of government, or at least, as Winston Churchill put it, the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. There's just one problem, the United States is not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. I can't even tell you how many times my grandfather, Gino Popola, a medical doctor, and American history buff, said this to me over the years.
4: What in the Constitution doesn't say about that? It doesn't say that. It doesn't
1: say anything at all. When I followed up with, what does that mean, grandpop? He would respond, it means we're a nation of laws, not mob rule. Rule of law, versus mob rule. Is that a fair take? Well, our founding fathers would think so. They wrote at length about the historical and philosophical problems with direct democracy and designed the constitution to constrain it. But before we get into that, let's dive deeper into what democracy is and where it breaks.
0: I love democracy. I love the Republic.
1: Democracy is, technically speaking, majority rule. In a simple, Direct democracy, every citizen would vote directly for this or that new law or policy. Want a park in your neighborhood? Everyone votes on it. The simple majority wins. And majorities can become a mob real quick. The phrase, the madness of crowds, is a common saying and a popular book title for a reason. The word democracy comes from the Greek word demos, meaning the people, and kratia, meaning power or rule. DEMOCRATIA. Take a trip through France in the 1500s, and you end up with DEMOCRACY. Power to, of, by, and for the people. What could possibly be wrong with that? Don't we want the people to have the power instead of all those corrupt elites, aristocrats, monarchs, and warlords? Well, certainly. Remember the great historian, writer, and English parliamentarian, Lord Acton, who said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. So if absolute power corrupts, distribution of power to the people seems like a solution, right? Well, not so fast. A few more questions are in order, like the power to do what exactly? and to whom, and which people are deciding. Well, the rules of a direct democracy are pretty simple. Without any constraints, democracy is the power to do anything to anyone, so long as a simple majority wants it done. Popularity rules. So, if you can get 50.00001% of the people to agree and vote on your proposition, you can tax people you don't like to pay for things you want, or, Force everyone to buy a product, like health insurance, or get vaccinated, or burn so-called witches at the stake, abuse or enslave minorities, draft other people's children and send them off to war, or simply kill unpopular people. All of these things have happened in America and around the world with majority support at one point or another. If all that sounds like the acts of a mob, well, you'd be right. It can be. Maybe it always is. Democracy is never really power to all the people. It's technically power to most of the people. Part of the 49% club? Well, better luck next time. Assuming there is a next time for you. What's wrong with that, you might be saying? Sounds fair. To the victor goes the spoils. As famed American journalist and critic H.L. Mencken put it, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it good and hard. Put another way, democracy can look like two wolves and a sheep voting on what, or who, to have for dinner tonight. And we all understand this at a small scale.
2: Remember,
1: get him alive if you can, but get him! If I can convince a majority of neighbors to ransack your house, it's still robbery. Voting to do it doesn't change the fact that it's a crime. But scale that up to the nation and suddenly, it's a civic duty with a fancy obfuscating name, eminent domain. The Founding Fathers were deeply worried about this tyranny of the majority. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, wrote in Federalist Number 10, measures are too often decided, not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority there's nothing especially moral about an idea being popular. Evil ideas have been popular throughout human history, including racism, eugenics, slavery, religious jihad, and on and on and on. Tyranny of the majority wasn't the founders only concern. They also worried that direct democracy would lead to the creation of selfish parties and factions who would put their own group interests above the common good. That public opinion was often impulsive and driven by momentary passions. Again, that madness of crowds runs deep. They worried that our large country would make a direct democracy just impractical. And, though it's not polite to admit this, they worried that the people would not be well-educated enough on particular issues to make informed voting decisions. Again, see our kids' civic scores for proof of this concern. If all of those concerns sound familiar and reasonable, well, they should, and they are. Every single one of them has happened even with the various protections in our constitution. Let's be honest here. We're all pretty ignorant of the issues that we're asked to vote on, and for good reason. We're too busy trying to earn a living, pursue our dreams, and protect our families. Ask yourself honestly, how much time have you really spent trying to understand all of the issues confronting the current or future president? Before we get to what exactly the founders did to try to correct for these problems, I wanna bring up a newer, an even more challenging discovery about the democratic process itself. Buckle up, because deep sci-fi style paradoxes await. We've all gotten tied in knots over the legitimacy of our recent elections. This isn't anything new in American history, and it certainly isn't limited to one side or the other of the political spectrum.
4: If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. President Trump won this election, so everyone who's listening, do not be quiet. Votes remain to be counted. There are voices that are waiting to be heard.
3: You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee and you can have the election stolen from you.
1: This is all understandable, given the tyrannical power our political system wields over our lives today. And outright cheating can't be allowed. The stakes are high, and despite what some people claim, there's been plenty of election interference in American history. Even the New York Times, back in the 90s, before everything went completely crazy, admitted that Lyndon B. Johnson stole his Senate seat machine politics, and ballot stuffing, especially at the local level, goes all the way back to the beginning. Google Boss Tweed, or Tammany Hall, or The New York Problem for more, or just watch Gangs of New York, though not with your kids, it's rated R. I
4: already voted today. Cast for Monk and Tammany,
1: by
2: God. Twice. Twice, (laughs) only twice, you call that doing your civic duty?
1: But while people have been obsessing over outright fraud or technical issues like mail-in ballots versus in-person paper versus electronic voting machines, almost everyone has been ignoring something far deeper and far crazier about the democratic electoral process. It's a set of secret formulas discovered by economists who devoted their careers to studying how people make decisions in groups. These are the public choice theorists. And what they've discovered is as shocking as it is counterintuitive. The implications of what I'm going to try my best to explain here are truly profound. Welcome to Kenneth Arrow's impossibility theorem, also known as Arrow's paradox. Arrow starts with a simple goal, that our voting system should meet a few Key criteria in order to be truly fair and representative of majority opinion. The first criteria, unanimous consent. If everyone prefers option A over option D, then option A should beat option D every time. Seems fair, right? The second criteria, irrelevant choices don't change the outcome. If everyone's top pick is option A and their last choice is option D, then the order of the irrelevant options B and C in the middle should have no impact on the outcome. Again, seems fair, doesn't it? And this should be pretty easy to deal with, right? I mean, why would the order of irrelevant options to your main choice ever matter? Add as many candidates as you want. I like this guy. Now, here comes the shocking surprise. There is only one form of decision-making when there's more than two choices that satisfy these simple conditions. Are you ready for it? It's dictatorship. (laughs) Seriously, a single decider. No democratic electoral process can satisfy these two simple benchmarks for fairness. Only one person making the choice can do it. Does this mean that Churchill was wrong about democracy and Plato was right that a philosopher king or benevolent overlord is the ideal form of government? No way, all of history points to the fact that Lord Acton's warning is justified. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Waiting for a platonic ideal dictator will leave you waiting forever. And this completes the paradox when we add the final criteria. No dictators allowed. It is mathematically impossible for any system to deliver on all three. No democratic system can deliver more than one and we don't want a dictator. If you want to go deeper into exactly how these conclusions work, we'll put some links to a few great videos that walk you through proofs of Arrow's paradox down below. So where does this leave us exactly? And. What are the implications of this paradox? Arrow's paradox has a very important lesson. The rules of the voting system determine the outcome of the system. There are certain rules, and those rules vary state by state. So for any given set of choices, without any change in the voters' opinions, if you change the rules of the voting system, you can change the outcome. For example, the caucus rules in Iowa will produce different results for the same voters than a first-past-the-post system like most states have, or a ranked-choice voting system used in some states, versus, say, a two-round system where a runoff is required if no candidate gets over 50%. And again, none of those systems satisfy these basic criteria of fairness. Arrow himself downplayed his conclusions, saying, Most systems are not gonna work badly all of the time. All I proved is that all can work badly at times. This is a massive understatement, and one that I have to imagine was born out of the deeply uncomfortable nature of his own discovery. There is no such thing as a purely democratic will of the people. It's mathematically impossible. It's a kind of rhetorical flourish, a poetry, a fairy tale, a secular religion. Arrow's paradox is not the only way to arrive at this conclusion, but it's perhaps the only one that doesn't try to make a philosophical or values-based argument to do so. The math doesn't lie. How do you like their math? (laughs) We've seen Arrow's paradox play out clearly in open primary seasons where there's more than two choices, such as 2016. The rules of each party's primary determined who won. The sequencing mattered to the outcome. This means that we could change the rules in our primaries and get totally different winners without a single person changing their opinion of any of the candidates. For example, Donald Trump didn't win more than 50% in the GOP primary until 30 states had their primaries and the field began to narrow. What that means is that the GOP nominee did not have a majority of Republican support in a majority of states. But this is not unique to Trump. It's just the nature of the beast. Just ask Bernie. The establishment determined who the anointed candidate will be. The paradox also leads to other outcomes we've observed, such as driving people to focus more on who can beat their party's opponent versus which candidate best represents their values. This results in what's called favorite betrayal and other sort of fake strategies to try to outsmart the system. but it also produces polarization. I call these fake strategies because the other deeply uncomfortable mathematical fact is that no one individual vote actually matters in any system unless it's the tiebreaker. If I stay home in November, I know for a stone cold mathematical fact that the election results will not be impacted. Okay, take a deep breath. I know that none of this is what you want to hear. And I can imagine the pushback. Maybe you hate me for spreading malinformation, also known as bad but true facts, about our democracy. Maybe you hate me for saying things that could discourage participation and hurt your preferred candidate. How dare I reduce the incentive to vote? What kind of dad who claims he wants to save America would do such a thing? All right, now that some of you feel heard, let me be clear. I am not saying don't vote and don't encourage your kids to vote. And I'm definitely not being un-American by showing ample skepticism about majority rule. I would say, in fact, that I'm being patriotic. Remember what my grandpa told me. We're a nation of laws, not mob rule. America is not a democracy. When Ben Franklin was asked, well, doctor, what have we got? As he left the Constitutional Convention, Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. A republic if we can keep it. Almost 250 years after Franklin gave that answer to Elizabeth Willing Powell, we are still projecting that identity to the world. Consider this excellent description of the United States political system on our U.S. Embassy website. While often categorized as a democracy, the United States is more accurately defined as a constitutional federal republic. What does that mean? Constitutional refers to the fact that the government in the United States is based on a constitution, which is the supreme law of the United States. The constitution not only provides the framework for how the federal and state governments are structured, but also places significant limits on their powers. Federal means that there are both a national government and governments in the 50 states. A republic is a form of government in which the people hold power, but elect representatives to exercise that power. Our founding fathers started with a fundamental assumption that every person was endowed by our creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our power as individuals is grounded in our natural right to self-ownership, our individual sovereignty. And yes, this foundation was at odds with slavery, which also set the stage for its inevitable end. This foundation provided the North Star for the Constitution's limits on government power, The founders and framers of the Constitution were not being guided by the simpleton ethic that whatever is popular must be good and true. They understood the democratic electoral process to be a tool for protecting individual sovereignty from the capricious predation of the state, not an end unto itself. They were radical revolutionaries who just escaped rule by a monarch and had no interest in replacing him with a mad mob. Almost every component of the original constitutional system, some of which has since been tragically weakened or dismantled, sought to restrict what government could do to people. These are limits on what political democracy can do to people. The Bill of Rights are limits on democracy and majority rule. The First Amendment protects speech, assembly, and religion from majority rule. We are free to hold unpopular opinions and belong to unpopular groups or creeds. The Second Amendment protects the right to bear arms, even if gun ownership is unpopular. Go down the list, and each and every Congress shall pass no law should properly be understood as Democratic majority rule cannot mess with this. But they went further still. They divided the government into three equal branches, the executive, judicial, and legislative, and pitted them against each other so that that competition would constrain them. In the words of James Madison, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. They split the legislative branch into a lower chamber, the House of Representatives, directly elected by voters in the district, and an upper chamber, the Senate, who were appointed by the legislatures from each state. That's right. Senators were not directly elected. And there's good reason to revisit that approach, though I'll save that for another time. But the founders went further still, putting in two-thirds supermajority requirements for major decisions. Impeachment, expelling members of Congress, overriding presidential vetoes, and ratifying treaties all require two-thirds majority votes. It's easy for presidents to veto a bill, and much harder, for the Congress to override that veto. Finally, want to make a change to the rules of the game and amend our Constitution? Good luck. No simple democratic majority will do. It'll take three quarters of the states to ratify any amendment. All of this must be understood as limits on simple majority rule. Each and every restriction on government power is a restriction on the power of a simple 50 point something percent majority to tell everyone else what to do. By setting a much higher bar for big changes, the founders limited the randomness of arrow-style paradoxes. 75% of the states might not be the will of all the people, but it's a much better guarantor that the madness of crowds isn't dominating the decision. Now, there is a counterargument to everything I've laid out here. Except the mathematical fact of Arrow's paradox, that is. This counterargument is the central moral claim of the populist progressive movement that kicked off in the 1890s and continues to this very day. They claim that only democratic political power, exercised through government action, can counteract the predation of large private power. They claim that these constraints on democracy's worst angels are archaic relics at best. And now, little more than tools of the oligarchy to prevent needed radical social reform. Some go even further. Were all of the Constitution and Bill of Rights individual protections from democratic interference actually done in the name of protecting George Washington and the privileges of his elite white male cronies? Progressives have long argued yes, and to some extent they had a point. The Constitution had compromises which allowed slavery to persist, denied slaves full rights, and left determining the right to vote up to the states, which resulted in only a few states where women could vote. Now, this late 1800s progressive movement cannot take any credit for ending slavery, but they can absolutely pat themselves on the back for delivering universal women's suffrage with the passage of the 19th Amendment. In the name of democracy, they passed the 17th Amendment, resulting in the direct popular election of senators. So yes, as we've all heard, the American progressive left has long claimed to be the champion of democracy. They are the populist counter-revolution to our democracy-skeptical founders. There's just one problem. The progressive movement did more to centralize power than ever before including in the hands of truly unelected agencies. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who presided over the passage of both the 17th and 19th Amendments, is the poster child for progressive authoritarianism. You see, he was ultra-woke way before it was cool. Think of Wilson as the Claudine Gay of his time on bionic steroids. He too was a former Ivy League university president, a lover of centralized power, a warmongering globalist who took cancel culture to the next level with the Sedition Act of 1918. Wilson was also a virulent racial essentialist who embraced eugenics and resegregated the federal government. He also screened Birth of a Nation in the White House. Wilson's ghost is surely looking down, or more likely up from beyond, at today's newly segregated college graduation ceremonies with proto-woke approval. And don't forget, Wilson created America's least democratic institution ever, the Federal Reserve.
0: Hey, listen, party at the Fed.
1: The most ironic thing of all, Woodrow Wilson won his first presidential election with only 41.8% of the vote and his re-election with 49.2%. The man never got a majority. Arrow's paradox looms large. Progressives, it turns out, have been fair-weather friends to democracy. But instead of constraining it in the name of individual liberty, they've preferred more abstract collective goals, like equity. Democratic socialists going all the way back to Wilson competitor Eugene Debs through Bernie Sanders have long gone even further, subordinating virtually all individual rights to the right to vote. So if the majority wants to take your stuff and give it to someone else in the name of equality or any other reason that might be popular, they can do it without any constraint under that system.
4: It takes a wee percentage. But I'm not pretty
1: majority rules. Until it doesn't, that is, which a century of communist dictatorship has made crystal clear. Remember, power corrupts, and absolute power, popular or not, corrupts absolutely. As it turns out, the best defenders of democracy are the ones most skeptical of its moral authority.
0: And you can accept or reject anything that John Popola and his uh, podcast, Uh, Dad Saves the World, has to say. And as someone who created the Progressive Radio Network with some of the most progressive minds, I want to suggest that before you look at people calling themselves progressive within our body politic today, you look at true progressives, And you'll see that they're seeking the truth for everyone, not just to embolden or empower one side over the other. But how do we get to this place? How do we get... And I'm going to give you multiple examples of this, of how smart people do stupid things and good people do bad things, and then have no conscience about what they've done. They can disconnect. Do you love your daughter? Of course I do. And your son? Absolutely. We want to put your son in this war over here, where he has a high chance of being killed or injured, but when he comes back and he doesn't have a body, this hole, he's missing a leg or an arm, we, the government, that put your son in that position, will not pay for his treatment and rehabilitation. In fact, there'll be no general program to decommission the mind from the trauma that this person experienced, and may adversely affect their lives. But hold on. How can you get... where the majority with the Pentagon, with the military-industrial complex, with the Veterans Administration, with the State Department, the no matter which door you knock on, we are behind that door. Why should an unelected group of individuals get to determine what each individual should believe and do and take away the sanctity their freedom of choice, or the World Economic Forum, or the Trilateral Commission, or we're the, we're the Club of Rome, or the Bilderbergs, or the Davos clique, were the three hundred and fifty private jets that just went to see the Super Bowl, and can condemn on their cell phones on their way back to the mega mansions? Let's get that legislation to ban gas-powered cars. I see. Well, who caused all this? What is the progenitor? It is Edward Bernay. Edward Bernay was Sigmund Freud's nephew and he wrote a book in 1928. It was called Propaganda. Here's what he had to say. Quote, The conscious, intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power over our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our taste formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. And therefore, ask all the parents of obese children, whose children will die before them, Ask all the parents that take their healthy child to a well-knocked doctor's visit every couple months to get poisons injected into their veins, mercury or aluminum, formaldehyde or polysorbate AD, and ask them. Now your daughter and your son, they have autism. They have immunocompromised systems. Why do you keep taking them back to a well-doctor visit or well, child visit when they go in healthy and come out sick? I don't know. But I have to do it. Everyone's doing it. The majority do it. I see. And why did you all roll up your sleeves without questioning and looking for the independent science? Well, because we were told to. And that's why we eat pizzas and hot dogs and hamburgers. That's why we watch the Cardasians. That's why they have hundreds of millions of followers. But people seeking the truth, telling the truth, have... Little to none. Compare Chris Hedges, compare Julian Assange, compare Chelsea Manning and Drake and the other people who have been whistleblowers, who have sacrificed their lives, their freedom, their reputations to empower you, and you've turned your back on that as a majority. Why is it always and only the empowered minority that challenge what is wrong in our society? But he is just one of the problems. Now I want to give you a few very specific examples of this. Because if you see how these examples manifest without, let's say, concurrently thinking of, I didn't think about that. For example, several years ago, they said there should be no legitimate reason to ask a person to give an ID when they're voting. That's racist if you do that. What's racist about it? What's well, just did it? We say it's racist. But we're the majority, so it's racist. We're the majority. We're ninety-two percent of all media. We're also over sixty percent of all legislators. We're over ninety percent of all corporations, and we are hundred percent BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and Fidelity. So we are all interlocked, and therefore. We're not 50.1%, we are 100% of everything that you're going to do in your life, or you'll pay a price. That's, That's democracy? That is democracy at its finest. I see. So let me challenge it in return. Let's just say that you say, and we agree, that if anyone has to show an ID it's racist, Now, it could have nothing to do with the fact that a lot of the people are voting two, three, four, five times because, you know, you don't actually have to show an ID. And we have voting machines instead of ballots, and we shouldn't have absentee voting. You should show up. That way, at least you have a pretty good chance of having an honest outcome, whatever it may be. But now we find out that the last election that got Trump into power a group a cabal of Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, and Barack Obama and the people Brennan the head of the CIA all worked to try to destroy his chance to get elected this is before he was elected have you seen a single article on 60 minutes 20 20 dateline nightline anywhere showing that this was interference in election not at all and you're the ones who say that you must not have an ID. So does a does a person who may be a decent human being, or maybe a terrorist, maybe smuggling drugs, or maybe smuggling young girls, of which there are tens of thousands smuggled in thus far, when they get on an airplane, do they have to show an ID? Absolutely not. And what does Mayor Adams want to do? Give them each ten thousand dollars in cash, on a debit card. I see. And how's he going to pay for that? He's going to fire 6,000 police so he has money for 6,000 illegal immigrants. But how do we know the quality of what each of these people may or may not bring to society, those people that just attack the cops and beat them, kick them, and were arrested and let out of jail? Hmm. You want to give them 10,000 to everyone? Okay. Let's just say you're right for our argument's sake. That that no one should have to give a valid ID, and you'll say, "Great, we like that." All right, and that goes along with if you don't like math, we won't teach math. If you don't like to prepare for college, you don't. You can get right in. Uh, no, no, no meritocracy at all. Then could you explain this to me? And hold true to this. Hold true if you're one of those people that believe that. Having an ID shown to vote is racist. Show you're not a hypocrite. Your driver's license. You can't drive a car or a truck or a boat or a plane without a valid ID. You can't board an airplane unless you're, of course, an illegal immigrant, then you can. You can't purchase a car. You can't get a car registration. You can't rent a car. You can't buy any form of insurance. You can't buy train tickets on an Amtrak. You cannot obtain a passport and travel. You cannot even pick up your FedEx, your UPS, or post office without a valid ID. You can't go into any store like Home Depot and rent tools Or you can't buy furniture or equipment without an ID. You can't go into any hospital or doctor's office or health clinic without a valid ID. You can't get outpatient testing You can't donate blood. You can't get a prescription from a pharmacy. You can't buy certain over-the-counter cold medication. You cannot apply for a job. You cannot apply for school or college. You cannot apply for a professional license as a plumber, electrician, engineer, architect. You cannot get married. You cannot check a book out of a library. You cannot join the military. You cannot adopt a child. You cannot have any transaction in a bank. You cannot have a wire transfer. You cannot apply for online banking. You cannot apply for store credit. You cannot contact a utility company and say, I want electric or water, cable, gas. You cannot cash a check. You cannot get a credit card. You cannot open a retirement 401k account. You cannot apply for a mortgage. You cannot buy a house. You cannot apply for apartment rental. You cannot rent a hotel room. You cannot buy a cell phone. You cannot go into a court. You cannot enter a federal building. You cannot get a business license. You cannot get a state ID. You can't even cash in a lottery ticket When You cannot obtain Medicare or Medicaid. You cannot apply for food stamps. You cannot apply for welfare. You cannot apply for unemployment. You cannot apply for Social Security. You cannot apply for Section 8 housing. You cannot apply for H-1B visas and green cards. Holding a rally or protest, you need an ID. Buying a firearm. Adopting a pet. Applying for a hunting license. Applying for a fishing license. Going to a gym. Using a pawn shop. You cannot enter many nightclubs. You cannot even volunteer for nonprofit organizations. You cannot vote in a union election without ID. You cannot visit a casino based on your age and without an ID. Hmm. So just keep that in mind. And if you're willing to say, "I will not show any ID for all the things I just mentioned," then you're not a hypocrite. Otherwise, you are. And just like all the race hustlers that are bound now, and we have thousands now, we used to have dozens, just remember that is it possible that the reason you don't want anyone to have an ID is because the whole reason these borders have been open, with all the gangs and all the robberies and all the murders and the rapes and the drugs coming in and despoiling many of our cities, that is aside from the legitimate ones coming for the right reason that we should care about. You're letting all that happen just so that you can control the outcome of another election, and have one supermajority, and therefore have one democratic party in control of our lives for the rest of our lives? Something to think about. Now, what happens then when we have facts up around us and we refuse to focus on those facts? The evidence is there. We refuse to use that evidence. That's important, and I'll get to that in a few moments, but I want to show you what happens when, finally, one body of Congress, remember, you should never have three bodies of Congress, or three bodies that are administrative and legislative and judicial, you should never have those all under one person's power because then you have a monopoly. And yet, everything in our society is about monopolizing power, the media. We had, used to have over 6,000 media outlets. Now it's a handful controlling all of them. And what is George Soros doing? George Soros is in the process right now of buying the second largest media company in the United States as far as radio, over 200-plus radio stations, so that 24-7, if he chooses, he can have his pundits on there, just like his DA in New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles, San Francisco, etc., they're all funded by him. How is it that one man in a democracy is able to control the outcome of our judicial system? Say, this is no longer a crime, but it is a crime. No, I don't want it to be a crime, so don't put those people in jail. But they're stealing, they're hurting, they're robbing. doesn't matter. So how is that legitimating the principles of democracy? And yet it does and we we don't see it. But what happens when one day someone gets into power and says, we're going to hold hearings that have been kept from the public for 22 years under Obama, coward, Bush, coward, Biden. They wouldn't allow these. Now you have some. Let's go to a few examples of people who believe in power above all else and who can do anything they want and get away with it, protect who they want, punish who they want, and get away with it because the media is on their side. Remember, they have a supermajority. And yet, listen to them when they're challenged on facts. Let's go to the clip, please.
3: My time is almost up. I want to ask you another question. In the Senate hearing, in response to Senator, uh, Senator Wyden's question of whether the FBI is currently purchasing Americans' location data, you indicated that it was limited to data derived from internet advertising. Uh, It's since been um, reported that the FBI has admitted it bought uh, US location data. Is the FBI purchasing location data from commercial sources without a warrant?
4: Uh, This is an area that requires a little more precision and context for me to be able to answer that fully. So let me have my staff follow back up with you so that I make sure that I don't leave something important.
3: Uh, I'll just close with the FBI had 3.4 million backdoor searches of the FISA uh, database without a warrant in 2021. Can you say whether the FBI is continuing to search the FISA database without a warrant for American... Uh, Americans?
4: Well, if you're asking about our use of 702 queries, uh, those are, uh, there is no warrant requirement under the Fourth Amendment for those queries. Uh, fairly well settled. The 3.4 uh, million figure that you're talking about, I guess I would say t- a couple things. One, that's not 3.4 million people. That's 3.4 4 million search terms or query what? terms. Second, second, that's not a, those are not, uh, queries in violation of rules. Those are just queries my, my, under my the... My
3: time has expired, and but the, the committee will ex- look into the warrant requirement later sure in Sure will, you process.
2: sure will. The gentleman from
0: Florida is recognized.
2: The American people need to understand what just happened. My, coll- my Democrat colleague just asked the director of the FBI whether or not they are buying information about our fellow Americans, and the answer is, well, we'll just have to get back to you on that. It sounds really complicated, but I have other questions. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, Director?
4: I'm not going to get into commenting on that.
2: You seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens?
4: Ac- absolutely not the fbi well, does not and has qu- no oh, hold interest on. in you won't answer the question about whether or not
2: that's a shakedown and everybody knows why you won't answer it because to ev- to the millions of people who will see this they know it is and your inability to acknowledge that is deeply revealing about you but let's go from the uncurious to the downright nosy how many illegal fisa queries have occurred under your leadership of the fbi well, there are reports that have come out with different numbers about uh, compliance incidents. More than a million illegal ones? Because that's what the inspector general said. The inspector general said that in the 3.4 million of these queries, more than a million were in error. Do you have any basis to disagree with that, that assessment by the inspector general? Uh, I'm, not,
4: I'm not sure. Actually, that's a a correct characterization of the inspector general's
2: findings on that. Oh, well, on well that. the Internet I, will remind you but of that I, in moments, but, but let, let's now go to uh, what the, the court said. The court said it was over 200,000 that have occurred on your watch. W- w- do you have any basis to disagree with that assessment?
4: Again, I don't have the numbers I sit here right now. What
2: I can't do. Seems like you- a number you should know how many times the FBI is breaking the law under your watch, especially if it's, like, over a million to not know that number, and I'm worried about your veracity on the subject as well. Play, this, play the video.
4: Letters for you investigation to the FISA of court? the Capitol. I don't believe FISA is remotely implicated in our investigation. You,
2: you, so so there, Senator Lee's asking you whether or not FISA was in any way involved in your January 6th investigation, and you say no. It, was that truthful?
4: I said that I did not believe it was
2: okay. So now let's pull up what the court said, which was something a little different than what you said. So, so, here-
0: okay, this is just one example. There are hundreds that we have where here's the FBI director being told you had over a million fraudulent activities by the FBI employees using the FIVA illegally. No one in the mainstream media, no one in government, was willing to talk about it. Here, they were questioned, and you saw their answers evasive. We'll have to get back to you. How about this? I'd like anyone in the audience to challenge this. Here's what has actually occurred in the way of diseases or disorders and an increase from 1990. ADHD, 819% increase. Alzheimer's disease, 299%. Autism, 2,094% increase. Bipolar disease in youth, 10,833% increase. Celiac disease, 1,101%. Just uh, improve uh, increase chronic fatigue syndrome eleven thousand twenty seven percent increase depression two hundred eighty percent diabetes three hundred and seven percent fibromyalgia seven thousand two hundred seventy two percent hyperthyroidism seven hundred two percent lupus seven hundred eighty seven percent osteoporosis four hundred forty nine percent and sleep apnea four hundred thirty percent. This should have gone down, not up. Every single health indices is going up showing how sick we are. Well, if we've got four plus trillion dollars being spent on medicine, more doctors, more hospitals, more nurses, more diagnostics than anyone else in the world, how is it that we're doing the worst? And that's what happens when one group, finance, Wall Street, hedge funds, equity partners, buy up the entire medical industrial complex and control the outcome. There is no prevention There's no individual saying, we're doing it all wrong. Instead, we're doing it exactly how we, as a group, can control the outcome. Now, when you look around America, and I'm finishing up a second documentary, a sequel to Poverty, Inc., uh, we're saying goodbye to the BBI. We'll continue the top of the hour on PRN.live. It's called Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? We're seeing poverty that is not recognized, is not helped at all. The figures are for right now, right as we speak. How many people in the United States, American home homeowners now are homeless? All right? There's a 12% increase this year over last year. And these are only people that are identifying by showing up at shelters. It was 24 million people in 2008. of the nation lives below the poverty line. That's 12%. Meaning they don't have enough food to eat on a daily basis. 41 of 50 states has increased in homelessness. Every ethnic group experienced an increase in homeless individuals. Asian community, the highest at 64%. Uh, Hispanic and Latino, highest in raw numbers. 37% are unsheltered, meaning they're living on the streets or someplace else. There's over 111,600 children under 18 who are homeless. 34,000 young adults, 18 to 24, um, and mind you, they have no home. 127,000, that's 22%, are chronically homeless with disabilities who have experienced long-term homelessness like veterans. And what are we doing to these veterans? Nothing. Private organizations can help. The worst is Washington, D.C. with 66%, 10,000 followed in order by New York, Vermont, California, Oregon, Hawaii, Alaska. Interesting, those are all democratic states. The highest increases during the last year is New Hampshire, New Mexico, and New York. Half of homeless reside in the nation's 50 largest cities, leading cities of homelessness, New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Diego, and Denver. The worker now must earn more than double the federal minimum wage to afford a two-bedroom rental in every state. And they can't. So they're just scrapping by. So how do you think it feels to be a person that tonight will have no place to sleep, no food to eat, unless someone's kind enough to give that two of them, no doctor will take care of them, no hospital will take care of them, if they don't have insurance or can't show that someone's going to pay for it. And yet we're giving free credit cards, $10,000 each. We're laying off the police as crime is increasing to pay for those individuals. And it's just beginning. This is just the beginning of an overwhelming amount of people coming that we're not prepared in any way. That doesn't help the legitimate ones coming. It's a disservice to them because they're going to get here and find out after their stay in a hotel and the $6,000 bus ride to go from Texas to here and in a hotel that allows them to stay for 30 or 60 days or a tent that's incompatible with the weather and privacy and this spread of disease. None of these people are being tested for any communicable diseases they may be bringing in. None of them are being challenged if, whether or not they're engaged in drugs. The cartels are making billions of dollars. All to buy the vote. What do you think this looks like? to the average American, even the average person who has been silent in the majority. So, ask yourself, how much longer are you going to participate in their games? Get off their game board, get off their grid, stop buying their... their whether it's a car or clothing, stop putting money in their banks, stop voting for them in election, Look for the populist independence. Look for ways you can become more aware of the truth of the system you're living under. If not, then one day you're going to wake up and look out the window. And it's not your neighbor they're going to because he is a communist or a socialist or a capitalist. It's just that that person watched the wrong video. They didn't want to get a vaccine. And if this was France, they'll go to jail for three years. Can be fine, more money than they could earn in two years. But today they're coming for you. Why me? I didn't do anything. Well, that's the problem. You didn't do anything. Intentional neglect of the very nature of society you're a part of. Tonight, a special tribute to America's greatest chef, a close friend of mine who just passed last week, David Boulay. I'm going to play a documentary I made on David, Called The Art of Healthy Cooking. And you'll see a remarkably creative genius with his culinary skills and his philosophy of life. You won't want to miss that tonight, 7 o'clock. Have a nice day, everyone.